in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. Just think philosophically, uh, think about it. You're Mother Nature, right? Okay. And, um, and you've been really successful with green plants, um, using photosynthesis, uh, exploiting the energy of light. You know, when animals can forage, they can get their energy, their food um, uh, from, from plants. That, that works, but Mother Nature is scratching her head. So should I just discard it, forget about it, and go for the food? Or should I maybe keep it in reserve? I were Mother Nature. Um, I would say, well, you know, it's been successful. Why discard it to build this kind of water from ordinary water to build the fourth phase water? Uh, requires energy, of course, uh, and the energy comes from light. This is beyond red. This is infrared, um, and and we found that uh, even even tiny amounts tiny amounts of infrared light could be extremely effective at building these sheets building the easy or fourth phase water actually there's some uh there's some research coming out that even uh if we take in chlorophyll uh we can actually make energy uh from that via um our mitochondria just by just by ingesting it and just having the sun uh, you know hit our skin one of the reasons why this weed killer kills weeds is because because it, it diminishes the amount of easy water and that impairs function in all of the cells of these plants that we refer to as weeds my name is jorge roman author of return to human certified health coach in training metabolically flexible individual and insulin sensitive human in this podcast, I will relentlessly ask, why is there so much conflicting information about health, nutrition, and lifestyle recommendations? Is there more to the story? Or are those individuals involved with natural and alternative health simply a bunch of pseudoscientific quacks? I will often have solo episodes discussing relevant scientific research around nutrition, supplementation, and powerful lifestyle practices. I'll also occasionally plug my health coaching programs shamelessly. I'll also be interviewing thought leaders from all walks of life in an attempt to discover what truly makes someone sick or healthy. Now I will do this all with no agendas, no ideology, no BS, just the truth. Regardless of the fact that one, it'll be very difficult to do, and two, I will inevitably trigger and anger some narrow-minded and myopic individuals. Now to live damn well doesn't simply mean living life perfectly. We're all going to die someday, so striving for that ultimate health is a pretty counterproductive goal. Rather, I hope to learn from myself and empower others to fulfill their purpose and enjoy life to the fullest, all while being disease-free, energetic, and in total control of their biology. I believe humanity already has all of the tools to create a life which is disease-free, joyful, and highly fulfilling. Now we need to do the hardest part, cutting through the divisive, arrogant, close-minded BS which holds us all back from creating the world we deeply desire. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and I hope to serve you on yours. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My name is Jorge Roman, and my guest today is Dr. Gerald Pollack, Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Washington. Dr. Pollack's research is centered around the most important building block of life, water. 
As a result of his research, Dr. Pollock authored The Fourth Phase of Water, Beyond Solid, Liquid, and Vapor, shedding light on a critical component of life which simply doesn't get the spotlight too often. He's founding editor-in-chief of the journal Water, executive director of the Institute for Venture Science, 2015 recipient of the Brand Laureate Award, and 2016 winner of the first International Emoto Peace Prize. Dr. Pollock, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jorge. Happy to be, happy to be with you, and thanks for inviting me. So before we get into exactly what the fourth phase of water really is, I want to introduce an interesting concept that I heard on your TED Talk, which was really, really cool, by the way. So we know that we get our energy from food, but your research also suggests that humans, much like plants, can also get our energy from sunlight. So can you explain that concept a little bit more? Oh, okay, well, well, it's an unusual, unusual place to start um, uh, before discussing the, the fourth phase of, uh, of, of water. But, um, but just think philosophically, uh, think about it. You're Mother Nature, right? Okay. And, um, and you've been really successful with green plants um, using photosynthesis, uh, exploiting the energy of light, and even some single-celled organisms uh, will photosynthesize too. And now you've gotten bored and you decide, well, you know, I've done pretty well with single-celled organisms, bacteria, such, and green plants, and uh, I think I'll invent humans or invent animals. You know, and animals can forage, they can get their energy, their food uh, uh, from, from plants, that, that works. But, you know, this photosynthesis mechanism based on light has been so successful. Um, what shall I do? You know, Mother Nature is scratching her head. So should I just discard it, forget about it, and go for the food? Or should I maybe keep it in reserve? Um, keep it in reserve for uh, uh, perhaps uh, supplementation of, of of the food that you would get through foraging or reserve of some, some sort. You know, and being wise and conservative, uh, Mother Nature, if I were Mother Nature, um, I would say, well, you know, it's been successful. Why discard it? It makes a lot of sense to use it. And so... So philosophically, it makes total sense uh, that we as humans and also, of course, other animals could use um, the energy from light as a supplementation or backup or what have you. It, it makes uh, philosophical sense. And so now you say, well, okay, well, philosophical sense is okay, but what about evidence? Uh, is there any evidence that, you know, that, that we use light? Um, and most of us don't, don't really think about, about that, but I thought about it. Um, and one piece of evidence, or I, I should say um, maybe a major piece of evidence, um, it has to do with this fourth phase of water that you mentioned. So, so how does light relate to the water, to the fourth phase? Well, the fourth phase is a phase of water that, <clears throat> that we uncovered. I, I hate to use the word discovered because um, there have been hints of such for a for hundred years or so. Um, so 
maybe uncovered is better than discovered. And what we found through our experimental studies at the University of Washington um, is that to build this kind of water from ordinary water, to build a fourth phase water, uh, requires energy, of course, and, and the energy comes from light. Now, I said, of course, but why, why of course? And the reason is, if you want to create order out of chaos, you need to put energy in. Fourth phase water is ordered water. The molecules are organized in some way, and it's built out of ordinary water whose molecules are, are randomly disposed and bouncing around at a fierce number of times each second or, or each femtosecond uh, even. And in order to convert that um, randomly, that the, those random molecules into ordered molecules, you need to put in energy. And we found the energy comes from light. You know, and many people are not, not so familiar with this uh, principle of thermodynamics or physical chemistry, but, but you, can, you can glean it from thinking about, uh, thinking about your, your office. So your office, your office becomes progressively more messy. You know, the papers are strewn all over. And it doesn't require any energy to do that. You throw this paper here and this book there and this pencil there and this laptop here. And if you want to organize it, you got to put in some time and energy to organize it. And so the, that illustrates in a familiar way the principle of requiring, requiring uh, energy to create order. And, and that principle applies also in, in, in physical chemistry and also especially to water. So if you, if you want to build this kind of fourth phase uh, water, you need to put in energy and the energy comes from light. Okay, so if you, if you buy that principle, you say, well, so what? Okay, and the so what is that um, this water that fills your body, this fourth phase water fills your body, and it's got this energy that it receives from the light. It's, you might say it's potential energy, it's energy that can do work, you see. And, and some of the work that's done by your body actually does come from this kind of water. And, and the, evidence, uh, the evidence for that is detailed in, in the book previous to the one that you mentioned. The fourth phase of water is a more recent one, but cells, gels, and the engines of life. And, and, um, and that book, one of the principal themes of that book is that the work of the cell, every cell in your body, uh, involves um, the water. It involves this fourth phase of water. At that time, this is almost 20 years ago, we didn't call it fourth phase, but essentially it's, it's the same. It's ordered, structured. We called it, as other people have called it previously, structured water. And that water is centrally involved in the actions, in the work of the cell. So, okay, to summarize, to make a long story short, the ordered water, the fourth phase of water, is critical for everything, for supplying uh, at least some of the energy in your body. And, and that requires uh, energy to build. And the energy for building comes from light. So, in fact, if you follow the, 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 the trail of argument, um, we use light to build energy that's stored in this fourth phase water, and that energy is used 
to do what your body needs to do. And, and so therefore, in a sense, or more than just in a sense, we actually do make use of light energy for function. Um, I think, I'm sorry to drag on with that, but you know, it, it involves a few steps of development in order to understand it. And uh, it leads to, um, um, I'm sorry, I'm ragging on and on, but there's so many things to say. It leads to, you know, to this concept that some people know about and other people think is just fiction. And that is that some people can actually uh, live mostly um, without food. And so, so the, question, the question is, you know, and I, I know some of, some of these people. And, and there's a lot that you can find. Um, uh, for example, there's a, there's a film uh, that's produced uh, by a guy named Straubinger from Austria. And uh, it's called In the Beginning There Was Light, if I have it correct. Um, and in it, he interviews about 20 different people who don't eat. <laughs> See? And, and they do just fine. And, um, and I was recently contacted by a woman who's a dancer, uh, a woman from California, and she contacted me to find out about this issue of where she gets her energy and such. She says that, you know, she dances, and dancing requires huge amounts of energy, of course. Um, and sometimes she says, well, she just decides or she feels like not eating. And so she'll go for three or four weeks without eating, and then she'll start eating again. And during this time, she's still dancing. So if you can imagine dancing uh, professionally for a few weeks, eating nothing uh, during this period, and then deciding, well, I think I'll have a bite to eat. Uh, so so um, there are people who do it. And you know, the question is, well, where do they get their energy? And uh, I think the simple answer is that they get their energy from light. Um, so maybe I'll stop there because I know you have other <laughs> other questions to uh, to ask, and I don't want to belabor the point. No, that was a great that was a great introduction. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have to think back to that the fact that we, you know, this this story of evolution began with bacteria, uh, archaea, and uh, you know the main way that these initial organisms really got their uh, energy was from light. You know, it wouldn't make a lot of sense that it would just be completely eliminated and just we would just need food. And actually, there's some uh, there's some research coming out that even uh, if we take in chlorophyll, uh, we can actually make energy uh, from that via um, our mitochondria just by just by ingesting it and just having the sun, uh, you know, hit our skin. So there's definitely a lot of interesting research uh, with the idea that you know, maybe a calorie isn't necessarily a calorie, you know, the way that we look at uh, thermodynamics and uh, calories in the body might require this missing piece, which I think is really uh, water. What exactly is the fourth phase of water? What does it look like? And why is it called structured? Well, okay. Um, thanks for asking. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, the, the term structured is actually a kind of misnomer. Um, it means it has structure. Well, everything has structure. You have structure, your shirt has structure, and the bookcases behind you have structure. And even I have structure. And even the cat that's sitting right next to me and 
always wants attention, also has structure. So, so the term structure is, is kind of meaningless, um, but, but it does make kind of subtle, subtle sense because by structured, it means organized in, 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 in some way. I don't know who, the, who was the first to um, use the term structured water, but a guy named Gilbert Ling um, is a guy who used the word profusely. And um, in, in fact, uh, Gilbert Ling was in a, a kind of mentor hero to me because Gilbert Ling um, had been talking about the water that's inside the cell and he argued for many, many years. He just passed recently, um, just shy of 100 years old, vigorous until the end. Um, he used the term structured to indicate uh, ordered. And his idea of the ordered water was that each, each molecule of water was like a dipole, you know, dipole meaning, meaning uh, a little, little bean-like element with minus here and plus here, right? And, and, and most molecules uh, are dipole, meaning they have more negative charge at one end and more positive charge at another end. Um, and his idea was that these little beans or dipoles could actually line up plus next to minus like soldiers at attention. And he said, and he argued um, uh, um, voluminously, many books, he argued that uh, the water inside the cell was not like water in a cup or a glass, not liquid water, that the, the, um, the molecules were actually uh, stacked or lined up. Um, um, and that's where, I, that's where I got started because um, I, I had been studying the contraction of muscles at the molecular level. And it, it occurred to me after, after many years of, of working in that field uh, uh, that, you know, in muscles, the most abundant component is water. And how come nobody ever talks about water? <laughs> you know, the muscle is roughly two thirds water by volume. But if you, can, if you translate that into the uh, number of water molecules relative to other molecules, it's huge. It's like 99%. In other words, you line up all the molecules one, and count one by one in the muscle. And 99 out of 100, more than 99 out of 100, would be water molecules because they're really small. And to make up that two-thirds volume, you've got you to stuff a lot of molecules in there. So, um, so it occurred to me that how, how is it possible that the people who are dealing with the molecular mechanism of contraction, uh, how is it possible that they omit the most abundant ingredient in the muscle? Um, and suggesting that it doesn't do anything. It just bathes the more important molecules of life. So that was a, that was a kind of turning point for me. And at, at, the, at the time, by coincidence, I happened to meet Gilbert Ling at a conference um, in, in Hungary. And I met him, and I also met uh, a dozen or so people who had evidence to support his point of view that the water inside the cell um, uh, was ordered, structured, as, as he said. And I was overwhelmed, and that's where we got started because, because I thought this is so important. And I asked some of my students to read one of his books and feed back to me to get their independent opinion. 
And the consensus, or I should say the opinion uniformly was, this guy is onto something really important. And if he's right, everybody else is wrong. And so I took it upon myself to write that book, Sales, Jails, and the Engines of Life. It, it was mainly, mainly to illustrate what Gilbert Ling had said in many of his books and, and talks, but, but Gilbert's writing, unfortunately, is not, was not so clear. If you're a professional physical chemist with lots of experience and broad knowledge and great intuition, you might be able to get it from his books, but if you're like the rest of us, like myself, maybe you and your colleagues and friends, it's a tough, um, it's a, uh, uh, to, to, to really understand all that he's saying is tough. So my goal was to write a book that would be accessible to, to, to um, non-experts. And so I wrote, I wrote that uh, book, Sales, Jails, and the Engines of Life. And then, of course, having written the book and having an active laboratory, I decided I want to study this stuff. It was really, I was so curious about, about structured water. And, and what we found eventually, we began calling the fourth phase of, uh, of water. And um, it differs from um, what Gilbert Ling had originally suggested um, in meaningful ways, but thematically it's very similar. There is order. And so let me tell you what we found about this structured water. We found that it's not stacks of dipoles as Gilbert Ling had suggested. It's actually sheets, uh, and each sheet is a honeycomb. That is, it consists of repeating hexagonal uh, uh, structures. So, um, and, and the sheet, each sheet forms next to, when water meets certain surfaces, many surfaces, specifically hydrophilic or water-loving surfaces, which, which includes most surfaces, what happens is that the water molecules transform themselves into this sheet-like structure. So you go from the randomness of ordinary liquid water to a honeycomb sheet. And the first sheet builds on this hydrophilic surface. The second sheet builds on the first sheet. And the third sheet builds on the second, etc. And these sheets keep building. And they can build up to, in, we have in, in some extreme circumstances, up to maybe a million sheets uh, of this, what Gilbert Ling would call structured and we call fourth phase water. We also call it easy water, easy standing for exclusion zone. And that came early on from our observation that this kind of fourth phase water excludes particles and solutes profoundly. So, uh, as, as it builds, it, you, see a, you see a zone that pushes out all of those solutes. It excludes them. And so we call it exclusion zone. And, and that term stuck, the reason it's stuck is because exclusion zone EZ is easy to remember. <laughs> so a lot of people pick that up, but it doesn't work in most other countries because instead of Z, they say Z. So it's EZ water <laughs> instead of EZ water. Right. But anyway... So the first property uh, of this fourth phase water is that it's built of stacks of honeycomb sheets. Second one uh, is that it's not neutral. So ordinary liquid water is neutral. This water 
is negatively, typically negatively charged. And the region beyond, uh, when, when these sheets, beyond uh, the extent of these sheets, is actually positively charged. So the sheet, the sheet region, the EZ region, the fourth phase is negative, the region beyond is positive, which gives you a battery. And that's the battery, that's the energy I was referring to, is the energy that you use in your body um, uh, as adjuncts to food um, uh, to, give you, to give you energy inside your body. So that's the second. Um, and the third I already mentioned, the third is that it gets built from, from light. And, and we found in, in, in studies that have been published that the, the type of light uh, that's most effective for building this is infrared light. So we're all familiar with visible light, you know, the, with wavelengths running from the short, at the short end, the ultraviolet light, at the long end to infrared light, uh, or to red light, and this is beyond red, this is infrared. Um, and, and we found that uh, even, even tiny amounts, tiny amounts of infrared light could be extremely effective at building these sheets, building the EZ or fourth phase water. We, we had an experimental setup where we used a light emitting diode, really weak light emitting diode, emitting infrared uh, light. And we could actually see a 10 times expansion um, of the uh, fourth phase, of the amount of fourth phase water. So it's very powerful. Other wavelengths uh, have some effectiveness, but not nearly as much as infrared. And a lot of people don't know or understand really where, where you find infrared energy. So let, let me just address that at the moment because it's really important. Um, you know, most of us think, oh, infrared, scratching our collective heads, what's infrared? Oh, yeah, yeah, my toaster. If I put the bread in the toaster and push down, I can look inside and I can see those glowing coils and they're hot and they're, they're, they're generating heat and infrared energy. Okay, so, so we know that. But in fact, everything is generating infrared energy. Um, uh, if you were to turn, out, turn off all the lights in, in, your, in your room and, and and whip out an infrared camera that is a camera like your cell phone camera except the sensor instead of detecting visible light it detects infrared light then even in total darkness you get a beautiful view of everything including your earbuds and you and your shirt and your bookcases behind you and even even the light switch that you, you can see and and the reason is that but everything is generating infrared light, though not as much as the coils in the toaster, but, but plenty. Also, inside your body, you're metabolizing all the time, generating heat. And that heat is essentially equivalent to infrared. So you yourself have infrared energy coming from both inside and outside your body. And what that means is wherever, wherever you have a water meeting the right kind of hydrophilic surface, the energy that you need to build that fourth phase water is there. It's in the environment. It's all over the place. And therefore, you will always have a certain amount of easy water. And if you had more infrared energy, um, 
then you 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 get more um, easy water. So so it's as simple as that. So so yeah. So to conclude, <laughs> um, your your question. Uh, um, yeah, fourth phase water is is structured. It, it it consists of sheets of honeycomb sheets. These sheets build on one another. They contain net negative charge, um, and they're built um, through by the energy coming from light, particularly infrared light. Okay, I hope that answers your question. Perfect. Maybe Perfect. it's more than you asked for. <laughs> right. So something that, uh, you know, after two years of college courses in biology and some research on my own, that's really been nailed into my, my mind. And what I want to get into uh, right now is this idea of structure and function, how structure like is directly tied to the way that something functions. So you're talking about these sheets of water that are, that is their structure. That is how they, um, that's what happens in response to something like infrared light, for example. So how exactly does that, uh, what relevance does it have for inside of our body? Because I know that blood vessels, for example, correct me if I'm wrong, the outsides are actually, uh, or the inner lining is hydrophilic. So that's possibly where that uh, structured water could come in. So how does that actually affect our, our health? Yeah, okay, but let me just, just a, a brief correction. I hope I don't forget your main question. Um, uh, it's not just the inside of the membrane, also the outside that are hydrophilic. It's basically every solid that exists inside your cell, inside your cell, and that includes proteins. And the protein surfaces are not completely, but mainly hydrophilic in nature. And the same thing with nucleic acids. And so basically, all the junk that's inside your cell, all the stuff, it all has the, the kind of surface that nucleates the growth of easy water, fourth phase water. And that's why your cell is actually filled with it. Um, and it should be fully filled with it uh, if your cell is healthy. And that's your, the basis of your question. How does that relate to function? Um, sometimes, it, let me just digress for a moment. If your cell is not filled with enough, um, then the function could be compromised, and that's why that's why you may need um, additional buildup of of this kind of water to achieve proper function. But your question is more fundamental than that, and it's different from what you learn in when you study biology. Completely different from the textbooks, because because what you learn in biology is um, is that water is not quite irrelevant, but practically irrelevant. It's just a bathing medium. Uh, for the more important molecules of life. And, and people who were studying those molecules, basically, uh, they almost completely ignore the water as, as though it doesn't exist. However, uh, the evidence uh, is that water is in fact absolutely central for everything the cell does for function. And let me explain how, because that is your question. How? And so, if the cell is just sitting there doing nothing, like let's, let's just take a muscle cell, for example, because um, it's a, a, a typical cell. It is one that I do know something about, but it doesn't matter. It could be a nerve cell or a secretory cell or a kidney cell, whatever. Um, so, so the muscle cell is just sitting there. It doesn't do anything. And, and um, um, it's waiting for a signal to contract. Okay. And, the water inside that cell, the evidence shows, the water is fourth phase water. 
essentially all of the water is force phase water. And is, that is, by the way, slight digression again, the reason why anybody who sticks an electrode into a cell will report a negative electrical potential. This has been known for 60 years and there are very complicated me mechanisms that have been brought forth and I've addressed those and I, without going into detail, I believe it erroneous. However, there's a very simple explanation for it. Um, and that is, since the water inside the cell, easy water is negatively charged, the cell is negatively charged. So it's, it's simple and there's a good deal of evidence to support that seemingly radical conjecture. But okay, so the muscle cell is sitting there. It's doing nothing. It gets a signal to contract. Well, the first thing that happens is that the water undergoes a transition um, between easy or fourth phase water and ordinary water, liquid water that you drink. And this transition is a trigger. The entire cell will undergo this transition. And what this transition does is it enables the proteins to undergo folding. And the folding of proteins is actually what drives the work of the cell. So in the muscle cell, it would be the, uh, main, the main proteins in the cell, actin and myosin, that undergo their, their uh, folding action. And your muscle contracts. Okay, and then after, after the contraction is finished, um, you know, the muscle wants to relax, or you want your muscles to relax. And the water then undergo, water and proteins undergo their transition back to the original state, to the relaxed state. And that is, the water then becomes structured, ordered, fourth phase, and the proteins go back to their original relaxed state. The entire process is called a phase transition. It involves the water and the protein. And the same occurs in, in, well, I can't say it occurs in every cell because we haven't studied every cell, but we studied you know, a fair number of cells. And that transition appears to be a, a central factor in, in creating the action of the cell. And so, so the second part of your request is, well, what is that? What does that mean for health? Um, well, see, since, since action or function involves a transition from uh, a state where there's lots of fourth phase water to no fourth phase water, and then back again to the original, um, um, in, in order to achieve that action, the original needs to be there, it needs to be, so if you don't have this fourth phase water, the action of the cell doesn't work because that's what's needed to get, get everything going. Or uh, 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 perhaps less extreme, if you don't have enough of that water, uh, then your cell maybe can function, but doesn't function quite, quite as well. So reverting again to, to the muscle. So you know, if, you've, um, if your muscles have, have uh, been exercised perhaps to the extreme, you wind up in the contracted situation. Your muscle contracts into a knot and it doesn't want to come out of that, you see. And, and, and the reason is, is that you need energy to return to, to, to return to the initial condition where you have the ordered water and the proteins in their relaxed state. So your muscle stays in this contracted state um, until you can muster the energy to restore function. And that, so you want to make sure the bottom line is that 
your cells really do need um, a full complement of that easy water uh, in order to function properly, and so you need to get it. And so, so you're, you're, um, you didn't ask the question, but, I, but I'm going to address anyway. Well, how do you get it? How do you, um, how do you, it's, it's important for, for the function and therefore the health uh, of the cell, but how do, you, how do you get all this easy water? And uh, if you ask me, I, I can go into and, and tell you um, a half dozen really simple ways that you can uh, improve your health through this agent of increasing the amount of hydration, shall we say, it's really hydration. You're, if you don't have enough of this water, you're dehydrated. And so, so how do you get yourself uh, fully hydrated? Before, so if you ask me, I can tell you, but yeah, it before, takes a bit of- Yeah, before we get into that, uh, yeah. I really want to get, uh, kind of dig into the rabbit hole of how exactly does that happen? So I'm, I'm a neuroscience student, so I, I look into, you know, like the central nervous system mainly. And so if I'm going to pick up this pen, for example, how exactly um, can you take me through how the water would turn into fourth phase water to then contract the muscles? How, how would that happen mechanistically? Well, yeah, I mean, so, so you're uh, basically your nervous system um, uh, sends a message uh, through, through a nerve and a nerve terminal that ends on the muscle. It says, hey, time to contract because I want to pick up that pencil. Um, and, and so this sort of triggering signal hits the cell um, and initiates this phase transition. Okay. And the phase transition, as I mentioned, uh, phase transition involves uh, uh, the water and the protein together. And then um, um, so the particular muscles that you need to be innervated in order to pick up the pencil, um, your your brain uh, says tells the nerve which nerves to fire and and therefore uh, um, which muscles to contract, and then you're able to pick up your 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 pencil. Um, is is that what you were what you were hunting for? Or okay, yes, yeah, okay. So um, yeah, that that part. Um, you know, makes makes sense to me. Um, um, it's not that part's not so complicated because you know the the nervous system is basically the or the brain um, is is useful for for making decisions like that. That you know, I've got the pen in my right hand, not my left hand. So the muscles in my right hand should do the contracting, and and the signal from your brain goes through the nervous system to the muscles that control uh, your right hand. And there it is, and when it's all done and over with, and you've picked up the pen and maybe dropped it on the table, your brain says, okay, I don't need to contract it anymore, it's time to relax. And the signal says, okay, well, we can relax now, turn off, and, and then the water and the proteins uh, are then signaled to return to their initial state. And that's where the energy comes in, because in order to return it to the initial state, um, the body needs energy. Uh, so, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, no, that was perfect. That was perfect. So, without this, uh, you know, this uh, fourth phase water being formed, then there would be no possible way for that protein folding to occur. Um, 
Well, I, I hesitate to say that there would be no way because there can be, there can be other triggers. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to think of what, what those triggers might, might be. I mean, this is the natural course of triggering, but for example, a mechanical um, a stimulus like um, uh, um, you press on and there might be a local response to that mechanical signal. That, that could be also, but this is, um, and the reason I hesitate is that, you know, we've studied many muscles and you could take the muscles out of the body and put them into a chamber, uh, uh, into a, a bath of some sort. And there are many ways that you can, you can stimulate the muscle to contract, but they're not the natural ways that occur inside the body. And that's the reason I hesitated is that, um, is that, um, though those are possible signals that can do it, but outside the body, whether they might somehow work inside the body remains open to conjecture. So today I want to interrupt this show by talking to you about a company which I love and have personally been a customer of for a few years now. This company is Hugh Kitchen. Now, after battling some autoimmune diseases and being totally turned off by the cardboard tasting health foods most companies offered, the founders of Hugh Kitchen not only committed themselves to using the cleanest, least processed organic ingredients, but they also did not compromise on the taste. Now, as a regular customer and having personally tried pretty much everything they have to offer, I highly recommend it, especially if you have trouble with gluten or want to try going paleo and lower your sugar for a little while without having to compromise. Now, from fully organic, grain-free, delicious crackers with a hint of rosemary to dark chocolate, lightly sweetened with organic coconut sugar and filled with almond butter, my mouth is watering. There is zero need to live a bland lifestyle while still staying on track with your health goals. Now, this might be a little late as the holiday season is wrapping up, but they're also great to give as health conscious gift for friends or family. Since you're hopefully a loyal podcast listener, you can get 15% off your entire purchase using code Jorge15. That's J-O-R-G-E-1-5. The link is in the description. Back to the show. Okay. Okay. And then um, we talked a little bit about this uh, a few minutes ago, but you said that structured water could bring some energy to cells and does bring energy to cells. Um, and now I know that the mitochondria is obviously incredibly important in creating energy uh, in the form of ATP. So how, what is the link between um, easy water and mitochondrial function? Well, there might be a direct, a direct link. Uh, first of all, let me address the ATP issue. So it's not a, one of those things that, Everybody knows that the energy comes from ATP. However, um, what few people know is that it might not be correct. Um, and this is not coming from me. This is actually coming from, uh, from the studies of, of Gilbert Ling. And Gilbert Ling, um, I, I don't know if his website is still working. It was gilbertling.org. And in it, he quotes uh, some studies from way back when. Uh, 70, 80 years ago, when the concept of ATP arose. And it was a real breakthrough. Uh, people thought, finally, uh, you know, we figured out where the energy comes from. 
And the energy is supposedly lies in a high energy bond, high energy phosphate bond in ATP. And that story, um, that story has been perpetuated over the years and it still is, is the most common story and it may well be correct. However, it was challenged. There was challenged uh, one or two years after that critical famous paper was published that described the high energy bond, uh, uh, phosphate uh, bond. And the people who challenged it said, hey, you guys, you had it wrong. You made a, a miscalculation. There's no high energy bond at all. Your arithmetic is wrong. And that challenge has never been addressed by anybody. And Gilbert Ling, uh, has quoted it. It's quoted in his books, if anybody is particularly interested. And it may be if his website is still live, it's probably there on the website as well. So I bring this up uh, not to say that the concept is wrong, but to say that um, some competent people thought for sure that it was wrong and it needs to be addressed. Okay. So your, your, your question was not specifically about ATP. And 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 remember, I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but only right. to bring up the point that it needs to be addressed. That's all. Um, the function that Gilbert Ling suggested for ATP is he called it a cardinal adsorbent. That is, it's a molecule that sticks to the proteins um, or sticks to other places and facilitates the buildup of structured water. That was his idea. And and I think I think there there may be some some uh, uh, merit or truth to what he's, he's he's talking about. I don't I don't challenge that. So um, so that now what about the mitochondria? Okay, so um, if you look at the structure of the mitochondria, uh, it it's pretty interesting because it looks like it's just filled with membranes, and these membranes, as you pointed out, hydrophilic surfaces, are just right for uh, building. Uh, easy water. And so it's possible that what goes on inside the mitochondria is the buildup of easy water. And remember, I said uh, the easy water is negatively charged. And if you stick an electrode in the mitochondria, you, you find huge negative charge. So uh, it's possible that what the mitochondria does builds negative charge, builds easy water. And that negative charge we found through experiments, um, if that negative charge leaks into the cell proper, it's a, it'll build easy water. And we found that experimentally, which we just have a, a, a chamber with water and two electrodes stuck in the chamber. And around this negative electrode, it, it supplies negative charge, negative electrons, easy water builds, you see. So inside the cell, if the mitochondria, and I, this is conjecture, but I, you know, this is hypothesis, maybe even speculation. If that charge from inside the mitochondria, that negative charge, that high negative charge leaks into the cell, um, the cell will increase the amount of easy water, which in turn um, will perpetuate function or promote function. So this right. is, this is a possible role of the mitochondria. Um, it's, it's expressed in a different way, but it provides energy for the cell, but in a way that may be different from the way that the textbook would have it. Is that so, okay? Yeah, what you're saying, I want to summarize, because it's pretty fascinating, is that 
it's a hypothesis still, but what if the main energy source is actually water, which is, as you pointed out, the majority of our cells, something that's been really dismissed for so long. And maybe ATP is, because I didn't know the fact that ATP may actually facilitate the formation of easy water. Maybe that's just like uh, simply like a proxy or, uh, you know, something that facilitates energy rather than being that main energy source. Well, yeah, and, and, and we know from our experiments that negatively charged uh, uh, ions like sulfate, phosphate, um, and, and such build easy water. Surfaces that contain a lot of those um, uh, um, uh, 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 of the negatively charged ions um, um, are, are usually responsible for building lots of easy water. So. It, it makes sense from, from the experiments that we've done outside the body to explain what happens inside the body. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we talked a and little bit. And also, just, just a, a correction. We, we don't know, you use the term, the main source of energy. We don't know if this is the main source of energy. It might be, but it might not be. This needs to be studied. Uh, it could be a very substantial source of energy. We simply don't have enough evidence at the moment to suggest how much or what fraction of the energy comes from this kind of negative charges, battery-like energy from easy water. Right, so it could be just one of the sources. It could be one of the sources, or it could be a main source. We just don't know. Right, of course. So um, I think we've talked a little bit about, and at the end, I really want to cover what things really build easy water and how we can promote that in, in our cells. But uh, are there chemicals or are there toxins which actually interfere with our body's ability to form easy water? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so the, the, the main one that we, we studied um, is glyphosate. Do you know about glyphosate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. You know well about glyphosate. Um, yeah. So for those who don't know about it, it's the, the active ingredient in Roundup. And, you know, Roundup is a weed killer. It's a poison. And in theory, it's a poison for the weeds, but not for us, you see. So in theory, we can tolerate. That's what we're told. Um, but, but the weeds can't. Um, and so this stuff is, is sprayed on plants. And they're genetically modified plants. So the plant, like corn, for example, um, the genetically modified version is designed to be insensitive to that poison. Uh, uh, but all the weeds that are growing that are preventing the corn plant from flourishing are not, are they're sensitive to it. So you spray it um, and all the weeds die, but, but the corn being insensitive to it, it grows just fine. And then we eat it. Uh, and so we're eating life as it. And the question is, of course, you know, what's the effect on us? Is this one of the reasons why we're becoming progressively more sick um, or not? And so, you know, the argument is put forth and many people argue that this is a serious issue uh, for us. So we decided to study it and we decided that, you know, since easy water is, is critical for health, is it possible um, that one of the reasons why this weed killer kills weeds is because, because it, it diminishes the amount of easy water and then impairs function and all of the cells of these plants that we refer to as weeds. Weeds because we don't want them to grow. 
Uh, and we found out exactly that that was the case, and we published the study. And, uh, and what the study found is that um, not only did the glyphosate, even at extremely low concentrations, diminish the amount of easy water, um, really, really low concentrations, but that other agents that have been touted as good for health for thousands of years increased the amount of easy water. See, so the contrast was, <laughs> was powerful, I think. Right. So yeah, it is possible. It's possible that many poisons, we don't know because we haven't studied many poisons, but, but a, a route um, um, to the action um, of these poisons may actually be exactly that, uh, diminution of easy water. You know, and without the easy water, your cells can't function, as I had pointed out, can't function in the way they're designed to function. So uh, inducing dehydration in this way could be, you know, uh, uh, one, one way of eliminating function, if that's... That's, yeah, that's very interesting because I think, um, and, and by the way, just to clarify for some listeners who may not know, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, which is really the main pesticide and herbicide that's used um, worldwide, but in the U.S. Uh, very, very heavily, especially on uh, grains. So the way that I started looking at it, and I actually did a podcast with a um, um, uh, Dr. Ailey Combe, Cohen, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she uh, has done some work on toxins and done some research on toxins. And really the main way which most people look at glyphosate is disrupting the microbiome. Uh, but what you're saying is it could have, you know, even like other detrimental effects and, and affect us from another uh, angle, which is water. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So be careful what you eat. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so are there any other toxins, by the way, that are, have been studied? Well, we, we haven't studied them. And, um, you know, uh, truthfully, one of the reasons we haven't, we haven't studied them is um, many of the people doing the experiments are, are young, young students working in the laboratory. And I, I, I'm always fearful that... Um, I want to make sure that people doing these experiments have enough experience and such to avoid exposing themselves to to any of these. So, so I I tend to be a little bit careful about doing it. But you know, there are many poisons out there, and and a a question is, um, um, well, the, the question remains open: Is it possible that some of these poisons work that way? You know, we we also studied. Um, uh, this is not a poison exactly, but but it, it impairs function. And that's local anesthetics um, or anesthetics in, in general. So, you know, um, if you take an anesthetic, uh, um, your nerves stop working, your muscles can stop working, etc. Transiently, of course. And the question is whether whether it's possible that these local anesthetics impair function through dehydration, uh, essentially through, through, um, through um, diminishing the amount of easy water. We studied three different um, anesthetics, uh, one, two of them local and one of them uh, general. They all diminish the amount of easy water um, in, in uh, dose-dependent uh, um, um, 
ways. So, so if you if you consider those a poison, they're not exactly a poison, but they impair function, just like the poison, except the poison is irreversible. Uh, this is reversible, and we found the same. So there's there's good reason at least to hypothesize that that uh, other agents that impair function could conceivably operate through this very simple mechanism. Gotcha. Now, I haven't personally looked into this, but uh, several you know, doctors and other researchers that I follow online have mentioned this idea that maybe things like, uh, like halogens, like uh, you know, chlorine chloride that's found in pools or fluoride, bromine, uh, do those things affect our ability to, to make easy water as well? Well, we haven't studied those in particular, so I, uh, I, I, I really can't comment. But, you know, I associate with, with a lot of people um, in, in the uh, uh, medical field, um, uh, especially integrative medicine, you know, where, or alternative medicine, where uh, people are trying to get at the root causes of, of the body's issues rather than, than dealing with reversing some of the symptoms, which which is, uh, you know, a, a sort of general feature of allopathic medicine. Um, so the the two cultures uh, differ, and 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 those, and I know so many of the people practicing med- medicine in the alternative uh, uh, group, and many of those people have studied carefully the evidence, and others have even obtained the evidence, and it seems it seems uh, uniform. Um, um, among those people that the agents that you mentioned are not good for our health. I haven't studied the original papers myself. You know, in, in Seattle where I live, the day has 24 hours only, <laughs> and there's just so much you can do. And so I haven't personally examined the literature, and therefore everything I say is secondhand, but, uh, but I'll just say that among the people who have studied the literature, there's a uh, consensus that these these agents um, are not good for our health. So let me let me put it at that. Got it. Okay. Got it. Um, okay. One other question because I just recently did uh, a podcast on on deuterium or um, you know an isotope of of hydrogen, and um, I was wondering, has your lab looked into deuterium and its effect on health? Well, yeah. I, I mean, yes and no. We 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 looked at heavy heavy water um, and um, to see if it if it, uh, it built uh, into a fourth phase and it did uh, though not as strongly as as ordinary water but on the flip side is um, is deuterium depleted water uh, and that is um, argued to to be good for health um, and um, I'm not sure the reasons why. Um, um, it 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 might be that because the because the deuterium uh, you might say it impairs the buildup of uh, uh, of structured water uh, um, because you get less of the structure uh, with deuterium. It might be that that is the reason why eliminating it. Um, uh, from your body could promote health because you get more easy water uh, that way. Um, that could be the reason, I, I, I'm not sure, but I do know uh, and I've met and spoken to multiple groups who have demonstrated 
that if you if you uh, if you use deuterium or drink deuterium depleted water, it could promote health. Um, okay, that's Got the it. extent to which I'm aware. Got it. So yeah, I think the main way that I um, that I've researched that deuterium has some effect is through this this uh, kinetic isotope effect, which uh, basically means that you know you're kind of slowing down some of the uh, chemical reaction in the body because you know it is it is heavier, um, and so. But from your research, there has been little impact on easy water. Sorry, from our research, there has been little impact. What, what do you on mean? The, on the formation of uh, easy well, water? Well, yeah. So, um, yeah, if you, if you used D2O instead of H2O, um, we found that you can get exclusion zones, but they're not as, as large as with, with, with H2O. The more... The more deuterium you have, the less the buildup um, of uh, of structured or we say easy four phase water. And so um, I'm just conjecturing. We we don't have evidence on this that you know um, if that's the case, then you're creating dehydration. Uh, the the more deuterium that you imbibe, uh, um, the more dehydrated. Um, you're going to be so if you can if you can use water that is free of deuterium then you might be in better shape we haven't studied it in any more detail than that but it's just a you know a conjecture based on what we do know That's it. that makes a lot of sense so as we're nearing the end here uh i know your lab has looked into not only how light and infrared builds easy water but uh, certain other compounds such as, you know, green juices, turmeric, uh, coconut water. So uh, what can people actually do to enhance their body's ability to create and maintain this, this water? Well, exactly what you say. Um, uh, put turmeric, eat turmeric um, uh, when in, in, in your food. Um, coconut oil also is great. Ghee, you know, from... A clarified butter we found also in fact you know this dates back to ayurvedic times um and and those people were wise they they knew about about promoting health and still to this day a lot of people use ghee um, um and and we did experiments and we published a paper uh, a couple of years ago showing that he um, is supremely able to build easy water more than almost anything we studied. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a recommendation. Um, so uh, sprinkle turmeric in, in the food that, that you eat. Uh, coconut water is great. Uh, ghee is, is terrific. Um, basil is a, another one of those. So all of those we found experimentally all of those at the concentrations that would be reasonable for inside your body, all of those build easy water. So, you know, for the long term, keeping yourself healthy, um, um, th those would be, um, would be good ways to do it. And, and also exposing yourself to infrared energy uh, to build easy water. That's another way. Um, and you can do that. By getting in the sun, um, that's a natural way of, of doing that. Uh, more than 50% of the sun's energy is infrared energy, or a sauna. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't do that 
as much in this country as, for example, in Finland or Russia. But um, that exposes you to heat or infrared energy, huge amounts of energy. Um, and that should be good for health. And that maybe explains why when you come out of the sauna, usually you feel better than when you, when you went in. So uh, those, those are a few ways. Just um, one, one, more, uh, well, one more way is drinking a lot of water because your body converts that into easy water. Um, or, or juicing because what do you do when you juice? Well, you take, you take the water from inside plant cells. Um, and these plant cells are, you know, freshly grown plants. And they should have, and we know they do, um, easy water inside of them. So you're squeezing easy water from inside the plants and putting it into your own body. Mm -hmm. So that's one other way of, of getting easy water. And that's why, you know, according to uh, health practitioners, uh, many of them report to me that patient comes in and first thing they tell the patient, no matter what their problem is, drink, do juicing and drink that freshly juiced water or freshly juiced juice. And inevitably they come back months later and they're feeling better, irrespective of what their issue is. So, and finally, um, um, finally, uh, connecting yourself to the earth. You know, w why should that work? But it, it does work, for example, you know, you walk barefoot on the beach, you're electrically connected to the earth, um, or you immerse yourself in a mud bath. Um, and, and all of these um, feel good, and, and you feel good when you do it. And there are lots of, lots of proposed explanations for why. And I have my own, and I think it's related um, to easy water. And, and why is it related to easy water? Well, it turns out that the earth is not neutral. Um, and a lot of people are not aware because we don't learn this as students, although my Russian friend who first alerted me to this um, told me that every middle school student in Russia knows it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and if you look, back 50, 60 years ago into the research, there's no question about this. The earth is negatively charged, it's not neutral, you see. Uh, or just that we don't learn about it. Um, and so if you connect yourself electrically to this negative charge of the earth, what happens is that that negativity has the ability to run into your body, into your cells. And any, any regions that are deficient in negatively charged easy water, the negative charge will rush in and build easy water and you'll feel better. So this is, you know, so all of these, all of these uh, explanations, if you will, or, or suggestions for maintaining good health, they all revolve around building up easy water in your body because I think that easy water uh, maintaining uh, is absolutely central for every function inside your body. Now, I know that this is a huge topic and super controversial still, but um, I wanna get your thoughts because you mentioned ghee and I know that uh, certain other fats are also, um, you know, can help to build up that um, uh, easy water. So this idea of uh, saturated fat being kind of the villain in a lot of the dietary guidelines up until very recently, um, 
it's still been kind of vilified. So if, if saturated fat, like from ghee, for example, can be so helpful in creating that easy water, which is, uh, you know, healthful, then, you know, are some of these, uh, ideas that it could be potentially harmful. Uh, how does that fit in? Well, I, I've not, I've not studied um, um, enough to answer your question, but, but there is something that uh, I will say, you know, fat has been um, uh, labeled as the villain, uh, you know, and we've, we've been advised to stay away from certain, certain fats, but, um, but there have been arguments uh, uh, to the opposite, and and the the central body that has argued the opposite is a foundation called the Weston Price Foundation, um, and uh, that foundation is is based on the work of Weston Price, and Weston Price was in fact trained as a dentist, but he was curious about you know why why certain cultures. Uh, um, maintain uh, good health and longevity and others not. And this was, I think, 100 years ago, close to it. And what he found that the critical ingredient uh, for this of the cultures where people lived very long and long, healthy lives um, is they ate a lot of fat, you see. And, and this obviously goes against the so-called prevailing wisdom. Um, um, and, um, uh, and, and, and so, and the people who are um, running the Weston Price Foundation have, you know, been espousing high fat diets for, uh, for, for some time. And I think they have a point. And I remember the director uh, who I met some years ago, um, emailing me just before Thanksgiving and, and telling me, be sure to put a lot of butter on your Thanksgiving table. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so uh, anybody who, who has a question or an issue on this uh, uh, should, should look at the website of the Weston, W-E-S-T-O-N, Price Foundation, and, and there you'll find a lot of information on this and a lot of wisdom um, that underlies this information. So I myself have no experience beyond uh, what I've just told you. So I don't want to come up with any speculation. Um, on right, it. But right. I will refer you to this foundation. To me, it makes, uh, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense that if one food, for example, like like we just talked about, could be helpful um, for health in one way, it doesn't really make too much sense for me that it would be harmful uh, in another way, you know, I, I like to think of like a lot of the, the healthful habits that we do as being pretty synergistic, you know, if they're, if they're helpful for one thing, or if they're negative for one thing, or like glyphosate, for example, they're probably negative for a lot of different aspects of our health. So, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. And also, this just reminds me, I know we're running out of time. Um, you know, um, it's a philosophical point um, that nature Nature, I'm convinced, works in a simple way. And if it looks complicated, if the mechanism that you're looking into or studying, if the textbook version is very complicated and it challenges your gray cells to figure out how it really works, it's probably not 
um, a difficulty that lies in your brain cells for trying to understand it, but it may be that the mechanism itself is erroneous, you see. Simplicity is, is, is really important, and, 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 and science has, has moved in a way such as to uh, champion complexity instead of simplicity. Um, many of my colleagues, my academic colleagues, would get up there and present a story about some mechanism in biology. And the implicit message is, hey guys, look how complicated that is. And this, this subtle secondary message is, well, look how smart I am for being able to figure out how this complicated system really works. And meanwhile, the listener is bewildered um, and, and, and the presenter looks highly intelligent because they can figure out all these complicated things. Well, I don't buy it. Um, I think nature is really simple and that if you're onto a, a, a mechanism and that is reverting back to the fat business, um, it should be simple. It, 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 it shouldn't be that, uh, it shouldn't be that an agent works by many different mechanisms uh, like ghee, for example, could be positive in one sense, negative in another sense. It, you know, because of, because of many possible receptors to ghee or actions of ghee, it's possible, but it's hard to swallow. A simpler argument is that ghee operates in one major way. And if you can figure out that, you'll understand how it operates in your body. So this is a philosophical point, and I, you know, I feel justified having done science for more than a half century. I, I guess I have license to philosophize a little bit. And the bottom line, for me anyway, I might be totally wrong, but I believe in simplicity of nature, in so-called Occam's razor. If you have two mechanisms, one is simple, one is complicated, the simple one is likely to be the correct one. Right, and I think what what you're saying is is uh, is, is phenomenal, and it's uh, absolutely true. Uh, from just from the research that I've been doing in the past few years, um, uh, in like I wrote a short ebook called uh, "Return to Human," and in it I talk a little bit about some of the flaws with uh, allopathic medicine and some of the uh, really kind of narrow-minded and research within the biomedical sciences. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's zooming in on one tiny little mechanism. And yeah, trying to smart as trying to sound as as smart as you possibly can, and then once you you know zoom out of that research, you start to think, how is this applicable in any way? Uh, whereas you know, if you look at a loose ancestral narrative and you think, okay, how did we used to live a few million years ago? We rose and set with the sun. We ate foods that were, you know right there we picked them right off where they were at their highest nutritional value we did all of these simple things and like you said we we were grounded we had we're barefoot walking on the ground all these simple things that we've you know kind of come to be disconnected from in the past few years i think simplicity absolutely fundamental i'm glad we agree i i think for me this is um, yeah uh, really important even einstein um uh, was there for for simplicity, although uh, I must admit, and and he did say, uh, nature works as um, as simply as possible, uh, um, but sometimes you have to add a little bit of complexity to make it work. And I think he, he said that uh, he said it in a more brilliant way than I'm reiterating. But he was referring to relativity, which which is not so simple to understand. But 
anyway, we, we leave it at that. I'm glad, I'm glad we agree. I think this is a really important principle, the principle of simplicity, which has dominated science for since the time of Newton, um, uh, how many hundreds of years ago. And, and during the past hundreds, hundred years or so, it's changed. Um, it's changed with, with physics, mostly with, with the principles of quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics, which, which are based on, you know, um, on abstract mathematics rather than intuition. I think it's necessary for us to return more to intuition um, in, in dealing with science, intuition and simplicity. So maybe that's a good way to end with a little bit of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, to, to finish up here, I'd like to ask a few uh, final rapid fire questions, sure. which I ask all my guests. So uh, number one, what is the most important health promoting habit that you personally do every day to support your health? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, uh, well, I can tell you, uh, I've, had a, I've had a couple of health problems um, and um, the uh, naturopath who um, who I've been uh, I, I'm seeing uh, is interested in overall health and uh, wants to keep me go going strong for at least forty more years. Uh, and she said the two most important things, and you know, uh, are exercise and eating lots of vegetables. <laughs> so I've changed my life pattern to doing those two, and I. I do them. I actually would follow would would follow so so much of the kinds of things that we've been talking about, but time is a is a real issue for me, and I I struggle with that. And you know, where I live in Seattle, uh, the day has only twenty four hours. I'm not sure where you live in Michigan. Maybe it's longer, but but you know, I try to fit everything into in into that time, and it's a real struggle for me to to, to do that. My late wife uh, used to tell me that I'm running five careers simultaneously. And, and I think she was right. Um, so I can't do all the things that I think are important to do. And it's, it's a kind of balance between them because some of them take time. And I simply, I'm simply out of, out of time. So, so is that an adequate answer to your question? Absolutely. Uh, number two, what is the most important or the coolest thing that you've learned recently? Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Um, uh, sailboats. <laughs> so I'm writing a book. Um, my next book is about the role of electrical charge in nature. Uh, uh, and I think it's all over the place, grossly underestimated. I think that um, um, electrical charge is responsible for so many things in our life that we don't recognize, ranging from uh, what we were talking about in the cell, but way beyond to, um, to um, uh, questions like what turns the earth, so we spin every 24 hours. What makes wind? Uh, what makes weather? What's responsible for gravitation? Um, how do birds fly? How do fish swim? Et cetera, et cetera. And I learned recently 
actually I kind of knew about it, but I learned more recently about sailing. I'm not sure if you sail, but um, um, but sailing, sailing uh, is something really un unusual. Um, sailing downwind is no problem because you can imagine the wind is blowing on the sails and pushing the sail, the pressure of the wind on the sail pushes the boat downwind. You know, that's a no brainer. But sailboats can go upwind also. And that is, that is a shock. Now, when I learned to sail as a young faculty member, I couldn't figure it out. I read the book and it didn't make sense. So the sailboat couldn't go directly into the wind. It could go at some angle to the wind. And, you know, I was told, well, read the book and you'll find out why. And I read the book and I couldn't understand why. It seemed very complicated. And a colleague of mine wrote a book, physicist, wrote a book a few years ago on sailing. And in order to explain sailing upwind, or at least partially upwind, required three chapters. It's very complicated. And, you know, as we discussed, it's complicated. You scratch your head, something wrong. And, and so the thing I learned fairly recently, which makes the whole thing so simple, is that there are some kinds of sailboats that can go almost directly into the wind. When they go directly into the wind, you don't need vector diagrams to, to, to um, underlie, underlie complicated explanations. It's very simple. The wind is blowing this way, but you're going against the wind. So it's like, if I'm pushing you, instead of pushing you back, instead of moving backwards toward the door behind you, you move toward me. I'm pushing you and you're moving toward me. Unbelievable, right? But, right? Unbelievable. Yet, uh, there are two classes of sailboats that can do that. One of them is a sailboat that runs on ice. It looks like a regular sailboat, but it runs on runners. So the friction is very small and there's no pushing through the high viscosity water. You know, and they can go almost directly into the wind uh, at speeds of 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Wow. It's like a gale force wind on your face, but you're moving into that wind. Explain it. Uh, and this also invented by the Chinese um, several hundred years ago, uh, many hundreds, a so-called land yacht. It looks like a sailboat, but it runs on wheels. <laughs> you know, so again, no friction or almost no friction, no plowing through the water. And also it runs almost directly into the wind, you see. So same problem. Uh, people who are sitting in the boat, is, they feel the wind on their face. So I'm sorry for the length of the, re, of the response, but why is this so interesting? It's interesting because something is missing from the equation, right? It can't be that I push you and you move toward me instead of away from in the direction I'm pushing. And um, if, if that were true, and you can explain it just by, by that wind, Newton would be turning over in his grave. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you see. Right. And there comes the role of charge. And um, yeah, so without going in, in, into detail, I think that, that the sails become charged as they move through the wind, as anything becomes charged as it moves through the wind. And very simple explanations, which I won't go into because I need a diagram, um, can explain how the sailboat moves into the wind. And that's coming in the next, in the next book.
So uh, it, it wasn't something that I found out yesterday, but it wasn't so long ago either. Right. Okay. And we'll, yeah, we'll find that out in, in your next book. Yep. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Hopefully within the year. <laughs> awesome. So uh, where can people find out more about you uh, and your work? Uh, my lab website uh, would would be um, would be one way. Um, that's probably probably the best way. You know, there there are many talks online, um, and uh, but but the website is the best. And if you ask me for the URL, I can't tell you, but I can give it to you afterward. Or if if you look under my name, Gerald Pollock. Um, uh, laboratory or something like that university of washington you you'll find it right away perfect um, i'll i'll have the links to all those uh, in the show notes so people can can sure. find you yeah in the book i would recommend you know look on amazon under the fourth phase of water it's become really popular um, and there's a lot in it great uh yeah. thank you very much for your time well thank you the, your questions were great thank you now, if you enjoyed this episode and you've enjoyed some of my other episodes, it would be very, very helpful to me if you could share this with your loved ones, share this with your family and friends, and give this a review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. That would be very, very helpful. Navigating the world of health and wellness is anything but straightforward. So if you're a little bit confused as to you know, what things are harmful, is this food good? Is this food bad? Well, spoiler alert, it's not that simple. However, I and many others have done the heavy lifting. So I put together a book called Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our immune systems and how to move back towards optimal health. The full version is available on Amazon. Now it's around 70 or 80 pages. And so it's really a simple guidebook that you can use and an introduction to all of the major aspects of health, which is why I think it's so helpful for people who are kind of confused and lost. Here's what I cover. I cover the top six aspects of health, which if compounded, if combined together, and all of these things are done properly, then you can have amazing effect on your overall health because you know, unlike what many health gurus claim, one thing will not make a healthy person. Multiple things will give you a 1%, a 2%, even a 10% if you're lucky, increase in your overall quality of life. Now that's what I set out to do when I wrote this book. So I cover those top six. I tell you very, very simple things that one, damage your immune health and your overall health. Two, how you can do the appropriate thing based on research right? And it's not a medical recommendation. Of course, I want you to do your own research. You are responsible for you, but it's a great starting point if you're a little bit confused. Now, I understand that right now you may not want to dish out a few dollars, even though it is $3 right now on Amazon. That's okay. Because mindset is inextricably tied to your immune health, so your emotional state, your mindset, all of that directly affects how your immune system functions in response to a virus or bacterial infection and so forth. So I made that chapter 100% free for you to download. It gives you some very simple tools that you can use to reduce stress, to calm the nervous system, all in a way that's free or very, very affordable. Now, if you want that, you can click the link 
in the description, which says free download to chapter two, or simply head over to livedamwell.com. I hope you check it out. I hope it helps and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.